when you're ready. Let's start this game. Welcome to BCPLN Stocked and Let's Unwind with award-winning and New York Times bestselling author Amy Stewart. Let's see what Amy is reading, all about the Cop Sisters and her writing process. Hey, this is Sarah. And this is Stephen with the Bay County Public Library. Hey, Amy. Uh, thank you very much for joining us. Um, we're, we've been kind of delving into a bunch of different books that you've been reading because I'm coming at uh, you from previous books and Sarah's introduced me to your new series here that that we're here to talk about. Oh, good. I just finished Cop Sisters on the March, and I'm looking forward to Dear Mrs. Cop that is scheduled to release in January 2021. Can you introduce our listeners to Constance Cop and her sisters? Yeah, um, Constance Cop is a real person. She, um, she was born in 1879 in Brooklyn, but um, where my story picks up with her is in 1914, when she and her sisters were the uh, victim of a crime and they fought back in a kind of interesting and unusual way. And, and, and those events led to Constance becoming a deputy sheriff. So she was one of the first, if not the first uh, women deputy sheriffs in the country and kind of a groundbreaking person in law enforcement. So what I've done with these books is that I'm trying to tell their true story over the course of many books, Constance and her two sisters. So almost everything that's in these novels is true. And um, they're people that I've kind of devoted my life to, really. There's a lot of historical people uh, that make appearance in your novel. And the cop spends some time training. And I have waited the entire, just after reading about this, to say this one line, what type of training? Army training, sir. Uh, so <laughs> so uh, obviously, Bill Murray's Stripes had some influence on this book. Are there other Easter eggs, 80 movies influences that we might have missed in this? <laughs> yeah, you know, um, it's so funny. Um, you, you may well have as much of that movie memorized as I do. Um, Stripes is not really the movie that Bill Murray is best remembered for or most appreciated for, but it was the movie that was on cable during my entire childhood and adolescence pretty much every day. And uh, yeah, I have almost every line in that, in that movie memorized. So let me explain this. What happened is when World War I started, uh, the cop sisters dropped out of the historical record for a little while. So I didn't know exactly what they were up to. And I decided to fictionalize that part of the story somewhat and send them to a real life place, a thing that really did happen, which is a national um, military style training camp for women who wanted to serve in World War I. This is a real thing. It's kind of an amazing story. But um, in reality, the cop sisters were not there. I don't know what they were doing. But I'm sitting and thinking to myself about this book, and this is Cop Sisters on the March is the one we're talking about. And I'm, I'm thinking about how I'm going to structure it. And I had a real life character who was in, in real life, her life was going to fall apart. She was going to walk past like a recruiting station at, in New York and see about the National Service School and decide to go join. And as I'm thinking about this scene and how quickly I could sort of get into that piece of the story, I realized this is the opening scene of Stripes. This is Bill Murray, and he loses his job. He was a cab driver. He loses his job, his girlfriend, and his apartment all in one afternoon. And then he's sitting around with his best friend, who's, of course, 
Harold Ramis and and uh, and the um, a recruiting commercial for the army comes on the TV and he goes, I could do that. And off they go to basic training. So once I, once I saw that, I could not unsee it. <laughs> and so there are other elements that are in stripes that are also um, in the book. Like I knew that the woman running the camp was going to need to leave for some reason and Constance was going to take over and I needed a way for that to happen. And so, of course, I remembered that the sergeant gets sort of blown off the rickety wooden stand that he's standing on, breaks his leg, Sergeant Hulka. So I thought, that's what I'm going to do. And like, oh, oh, oh there's may, maybe only a small number of people who are going to recognize all this stuff, but it was super fun for me. So yeah, that's my, that is my not exactly highbrow Bill Murray reference that's in that book. So does this mean that the cops will be going off to be part of some kind of special training procedure over in Europe in the next one? <laughs> yeah, really. I know. There's there's only so far I can go with that whole idea. But it is kind of funny that um, in the movie, in Stripes, there's this urban assault vehicle. And uh, in the book, um, Norma, the middle sister, is working on this pigeon transport cart, which is a real thing that they used in World War One to move messenger pigeons back and forth to the front. So there actually is sort of like a weird top secret vehicle as well. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. The pigeons ties right into my next question because I was very interested in pigeons. Um, realizing that she had brought the pigeons to the camp with Norma, um, then I went on like a World War One pigeon Google search to kind of see what did pigeons do? And I learned a little bit about um, President Wilson, which was one of the lead pigeons, as well as Cher Ami. And they both would like go into battle and they both lost legs. And it's just crazy stories with these pigeons that are doing great things, doing messages. Um, so I was curious, does your next book include the pigeons in action? And how did you decide to pair Norma with pigeons to begin with? Yeah, so, you know, I don't know much in real life about what Norma was up to during these early years. I do know more going forward what happens um, down the road with Norma. But um, I, I did know something about her personality because I've tracked down some descendants of the Cop family, including, believe it or not, uh, the youngest sister, Florette's son. Um, she was the youngest. He was born later in life, which is why it's possible for him to even still be alive. He was in his wow. 80s um, when I went out and met him about five years ago. And um, it, he remembers his Aunt Norma from when he was a little boy. So here's one person on the planet who has direct personal knowledge of at least two of my three characters. And he was the one who gave me Norma's personality and said, oh, she's this very difficult, disagreeable person. She's extremely judgmental holds a grudge, stubborn. And I was like, great, I love her. I, yeah, I can totally do this. But um, I needed something for her to just sort of be interested in. Like she doesn't like other people, but she's got to like something. And I didn't want to give her like a little dog or something like that. Cause it's like, well, what am I going to have the little dog do for seven or eight books? So I decided on messenger pigeons because they're kind of weird. It's something that her sisters would not be interested in and would sort of be horrified by. Um, but it's also like, it's, it's a lot for me to learn. Like there's a lot to it. And they really did have this use in World War I. So I could sort of have it build to something, which is this, this um, pigeon campaign in France. And, you know, it really was true. We don't think about this much, but when we got over there for World War I, France was an extremely rural, uh, I, I don't want to use the word primitive, but like pre-technology kind of um, uh, country. So we had to like 
build, we, we put railroad tracks all the way across the whole country and we laid telephone wire and we did all this stuff, but still communicating from the trenches at the front lines back to wherever headquarters was, that was really tough to do. And we were sending runners and that was very perilous. You can imagine these runners, how dangerous that was for them. And so pigeons really were in use. The Germans were already using them. In fact, the Germans had little pigeon spy planes. So they actually rigged up and think about how early this is, the 1910s. And think about what cameras used to look like, right? But they rigged up a tiny little camera that a pigeon could strap onto its chest. And they would send the pigeon out flying in the hopes that it could take pictures of the enemy camps or something. So everybody was already using pigeons. The Americans get over there. Um, they start using pigeons as well. But it's true in real life that the American, the, the U.S. Army uh, Signal Corps really was trying to recruit um, amateur pigeon enthusiasts to help them because we didn't have a messenger pigeon program. So everything Norm is doing there is kind of plausible. But yeah, the stories are amazing. And so I adapted the story of Shara Me a little to um, to this next book where, where we do get to see the pigeons in action. And, and Shara Me was a very heroic pigeon who flew through gunfire because you have to picture uh, the pigeons are in the trenches. The soldiers release the pigeons and they fly overhead so the Germans can see them up in the sky. And the Germans know what they are and they're sitting there trying to shoot them down and are succeeding in some cases. So they really are flying through enemy fire. Um, scared to death, I'm sure. I mean, the poor pigeons, they didn't ask for this. But um, yeah, they were quite heroic. It's definitely a World War I story that I had never heard about yeah. before. Yeah, it's fascinating. Touching on kind of that historical balance, obviously the 1900s were a much different time than what we're in now. Uh, so how do you balance that historical accuracy while still keeping some modern sensibilities to, to kind of balance out how the times really were to match your readers now? Yeah, this is something I think about a lot and that I really struggle with. You know, what I want is to be um, very true to their story and true to who they really were as people. Um, but we, we were kind of, you know, we were different people with different priorities and different values 100 years ago. Um, I'll give you a kind of easy to understand example of that. Um, how we think about our pets today is very different than how we thought about our pets 100 years ago. Nobody 100 years ago had a birthday party for their dog, right? <laughs> Um, uh, so, so we've really changed, but if you were to accurately portray people and the way that they were with their pets a hundred years ago, modern readers might be sort of horrified. Like, what do you mean your dog doesn't sleep in the bed with you? What do you mean you, you, the dog's outside? They're, they're supposed to be in the house. They're supposed to have their own, you know, whatever. Their, their own little, little, um, doggy shower in the laundry room and, and all that kind of stuff. So, so it is this, with much bigger and more consequential issues, it is this kind of question always of like, how do I let them be the kind of people they were with prejudices that might be unpalatable today and attitudes that we have a hard time accepting, but that are real to the, to the era. And I try as much as possible to weigh on the side of letting them have those attitudes and trying to depict it as it really was but it's a struggle it's kind of funny because we're i'm sitting here thinking what do you mean that you're not leaving the radio on all the time for your 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 animal just to hear and have comfort <laughs> while you're not home <laughs> exactly exactly right so I'm going to jump back to World War One, and I'm fascinated more and more by that time period, the more that I learn. Um, 
and there are so many changes happening at once, including the role, role of women. Um, I'm looking forward to Constance's next role in Dear Mrs. Cop. Was there anything in your World War I research that you were really surprised to learn about and that may or may not make an appearance in, in, in your books? Well, I'll tell you one thing that happened right as I was finishing up Dear Miss Cop. So I, I should say Dear Miss Cop comes out in January 2021. And that's the one that is actually said during the war. And what I've done with that book is I've split the Cop sisters up, um, which would have been true during the war. People were apart from one another and they were writing letters. So this is a novel told entirely in letters. It's an epistolary novel, which I've always loved epistolary novels. Um, I've always wanted to write one. Turns out they're a lot harder to write than I ever could have imagined, but it was um, it was great fun to do. And so, um, yeah, so for this book, I, so I had them go to that National Service School, and then during the war, you see them all kind of chafing against the limitations on women's wartime service. But I'll tell you what the big surprise was. Just as I was um, finishing up Cop Sisters on the March, which is the one right before this one, I found a film of the, tra of the training camps that women went to to prepare to go to war. And, I, and I'd never seen this piece of footage before, but it, I think it just recently got digitized. And, and most of the training exercises they show are what I was expecting. They were learning nursing, they were learning um, signaling, like um, uh, signaling with flags and Morse code and you know stuff like that. But then there's a little snippet where these women who are, mind you, wearing long dresses, like remember how women dressed in the 1910s, they're in these long dresses and they're climbing in and out of a trench that they've built at their training camp. And they're helping each other get in and out of this trench. And I looked at that and thought, they actually thought they might be in the trenches. Mm -hmm. And that astonished me because there's no mention of that anywhere in the newspaper coverage. There's no talk of these exercises, but at, at, at least one camp, that's what they thought. Now, in reality, women were not allowed anywhere near the trenches, and it might have only been an occasional nurse here or there, or a canteen worker, meaning someone who was there to dish out uh, coffee and food to the uh, soldiers, might have gotten kind of close, but they were definitely not serving in the trenches. So what's so interesting about that is to think that women, even 100 years ago, we're already looking for ways to serve in an equal role alongside men. And you think how long it took to achieve that, right? We're still seeing women in the military today achieving firsts for women. So it's it's um, we're still breaking those barriers. But that started much earlier than I ever would have guessed. Kind of building off that, what does the actual research process look like for you when you're writing these kind of books? Well, um, I do spend a lot of time with newspapers, and fortunately, um, a, a lot of newspapers have been digitized, so I can use a service like newspapers.com, which um, you have to pay for, but your local library has uh, access to all kinds of um, newspaper resources that you'd otherwise have to spend money on, but you can, you can access at your library. Uh, so I took a great advantage of all of those. I used uh, Ancestry.com to build out their family trees. And, and there again, libraries are a wonderful resource of uh, learning how to research genealogy. And it's not as easy as it sounds. So it is really helpful to actually learn how to do it. So those two things were quite useful. But um, I've also been able to track down surviving family members, not just of the cop family, but even of minor characters. Um, sometimes, because I build everyone's family tree in Ancestry, even somebody who's just got a walk-on part. If they were real, I want to see what else I could find about them. So very often I find their descendants and they'll, they'll talk to me, which is incredibly cool. 
But I also, for the um, for the new one, for Dear Miss Cop, because I'm sending one of the sisters to France, uh, I, of course, had to go to France to do this. I made the ultimate sacrifice. I went, <laughs> I know, I went not just once, I went twice. And uh, I visited the town in France where the army really did have its pigeon training school headquarters. I went to the fort itself where that those exercises took place. And um, one of the people I met there was a local guy who collects um, artifacts related to the Americans' World War I service in that part of France. And it's amazing what he has. He has uh, uniforms, he has canteens, he's got just all kinds of stuff. So all the physical stuff that they would have touched and what they would have worn, I've seen all that stuff, I've touched that stuff. So uh, there's, there's no substitute for, you know, in-person, research when you can you can do it the, the internet can only get you so far i never would have known any of this if i hadn't gotten on a plane and gone to france and talked to this guy speaking of the internet part what is the strangest thing that's inside your search history right now oh the strangest thing inside my search history right now um i'm trying to think about something well uh, so um i this does not sound strange to me, but uh, I have had to do a lot of research lately related to the undergarments that women wore specifically in 1919. And uh, this is important because it would have been changing right then. We would have been transitioning away from corsets. And mm -hmm. I want to make sure I get it exactly right. It's actually a, a crime. It's a, it's a victim of a crime and, and her undergarments were found. But um, I, I got to get real specific about exactly what that is. So that's that's in there at the moment. It's fascinating. I always like historical costume. Many of your titles have elements of crime or murder. And um, Constance is a natural detective. Um, do you have any true crime story that you're just fascinated by that may or may not have make, made it into the books? Well, the big true crime story that I fell in love with and I really had to work to figure out how to use it is the story of Beulah Binford. So um, Beulah Binford's crime that she was a part of took place in 1911. And my books don't start until 1914. So on the surface of it, it would seem like I really missed my opportunity. But the way I found out about her is that she and Constance Cobb have a mutual acquaintance. And um, I won't say too much about who he is. I don't want to give away, give away too much of the book. This all uh, comes up in Cop Sisters on the March. But here's what I'll say about her. Um, Beulah was uh, it wrapped up in a scandal uh, that rocked the nation in 1911. She was in headlines all over the country. Uh, she didn't commit the crime, but she was just sort of tied up in the whole thing. And she, in those days, even if you were the victim of a crime, even if you were only a witness, you could be put in jail. They would hold you in jail until the court appearance. That was real common. Nobody even thought it was at all strange. So she, she spent a summer in jail in Richmond, Virginia. Uh, newspapers writing about her every day. And by the time the whole thing was over, everyone in the country knew her name. So much so that decades later, I found newspaper articles that would say, we've had another Beulah Benford style crime and this time, blah, blah, blah. And no one even had to explain who that was because everyone knew the name Beulah Binford. And so I thought about this young woman, she was a teenager when all this happened. And I thought about this young woman whose name is no longer her own. There's no way she can rent an apartment, apply for a job, do anything with the name Beulah Binford. 
And who it reminded me of, the situation, the circumstances were very different, but it made me think about Monica Lewinsky. And like, uh, how do you go through, like, I don't have to explain who Monica Lewinsky is and, and all that stuff happened, what, 30 years ago? How do you go through life with a name like that, right? You can't. So, um, so I wanted to be able to write about her and write about what the impact of that was on her life because it was this national shaming that has so many parallels to social media today and the internet, but here it was just happening when we had nothing but newspapers. So, so the way I managed it is that I found out that in real life, Beulah Binford tried to redeem herself by joining the Red Cross and helping in World War One, And uh, that popped up in a little newspaper article that was one of these like, where is Beulah today? <laughs> Articles that were always running. And um, the Red Cross had to issue a statement saying, we wanna reassure parents that we will never allow the likes of Beulah Binford into the Red Cross. And you can send your daughters to train with us with no fear that they're gonna run into someone like Beulah Binford. So poor thing, she couldn't even go to war. So I, uh, I worked her into this book with the National Service Schools because I thought, well, they wouldn't let her in the Red Cross, but maybe she could have snuck into this National Service School. So that's just an example of a, of a crime that I, I very much wanted to tell the story, even though it was uh, too early for my series. So we learn about it through flashbacks, but I was very glad to get to really dig, it, dig in and, and really tell the, um, the true story about what happened to her as much as we know. Speaking of uh, Beulah, uh, you the way that Sarah came into the books is through your your mystery fiction. The way I came into discovering you was through a through a different book, um, and uh, that was the uh, the Drunken Botanist. And then for for your your cop series, you do create cocktails for them. And the most recent one was the 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 Benford Affair. So it's kind of like a classic twist on a mint julep. But what? I got a couple of different questions here we're going to go with because Drunken Botanist is, is a, a great book about discovering all the, the botany that's in the alcohol that we drink. So let's start off with what is the perfect drink to have while you're reading the cops series? <laughs> well, you know what happened is, um, so I wrote this book, The Drunken Botanist, which sort of goes through all the different plants that we turn into alcohol. And um, when I went on book tour for that book, they served cocktails at a lot of my events, you know, like you would. And some of them, we held them at distilleries or breweries or, or whatever. And I found out that if you serve drinks at your event, people will totally show up for your event. <laughs> <laughs> Even if it's just like a tiny little Dixie cup with a little taste of something, they will line up and get in there. So I thought, all right, well, we have to have cocktails for every book from now on. But the problem is that the cops, you know, the generation that they were and the kind of people they were, just looking historically, it's quite likely that they did not drink and that they viewed uh, alcohol as, a, as kind of a vice and a sort of low life thing to do that they wouldn't do. Now, Florette, who is the youngest of the three, um, she's going to be 20 in 1920, basically. Oh. Uh, so as you can imagine, we can expect a very different path for Florette in terms of alcohol and living a wild life, but certainly for the other ones. So it wasn't like I could come up with a cocktail that they were actually drinking in the book because they wouldn't have been. And plus the notion of cocktails, period, that kind of hadn't really gotten into popular culture yet by that time. So what I did instead is I just tried to come up with these drinks that had some connection to some element in each story and um, where the ingredients would have been attainable at that time so that they're somewhat you know, appropriate to the time period. And that are simple to make. So, you know, like a book club could make them or, or something like that. 
So um, yeah, so uh, for, for every book, I come up with this drink and I write a little explanation about why I chose it and how it's sort of connected with the book. And a couple of times I actually have had a character reference some drink just in passing, just to give myself that little connection because I knew I was gonna have to make a drink for it. My um, grandmother's aunt, Florence, she used to love Manhattans and she would have one every day. So I would think it would be around that time period. And she would go, don't be morose, have a Manhattan. And she would drink one every day. <laughs> so if you need well, a line for a character. <laughs> there you go. Uh, do you have a personal uh, drink of choice? Well, you know, it kind of depends on the, whatever, it depends on the time of year and uh, what I'm in the mood for. I do like whiskey drinks a lot. I mean, I think a Manhattan, for example, is a, is a fabulous drink. Any time of year. I'm also a big, I, I'm actually kind of a big believer in any time of year drinks. Like, I don't think it's ever a bad time for a gin and tonic. I don't think it's ever a bad time for an Aperol spritz. Like, I, I, I don't really believe in seasons for those things. It's just sort of like whatever the, whatever the mood um, calls for. When, uh, when I discovered your book, and we'll get into how I discovered it here in a little bit, uh, it sent me on a down a rabbit hole of drinking books where it was a drunken botanist, uh, drinking with saints, uh, gone with the gin, tequila, mockingbird, just all these various drink and novel drink and uh, religion drink and whatever books <laughs> kind of thing. So it, 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 you, you sent me down a rabbit hole in it and I appreciate that you did that, were able to do that for me. Um, oh, good. Glad to help. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but with the drunken botanist, it, it focuses on, you know, the, the botany of alcohol and you talk a little bit about uh, cocktail friendly plants in your garden do you have any yourself well I did I um since I wrote the book I've moved and and so I no longer have a garden because I live in a condo now but I planted a cocktail garden when I was writing the book that had I would say 30 or 40 different you know small fruits or herbs um vegetables whatever that are particularly good in drinks and so like um uh, an example of that would be uh, black currant, which we use to make cassis, which is a kind of a, a kind of a sour little fruit. Really, it packs a lot of a punch. But when you mix it with alcohol and sugar, <laughs> which is what you do to make cassis, then it becomes quite lovely. And it's one of those plants that you see everywhere in Europe, but Americans don't think to grow on. So I was always looking for things that were just a little bit unusual. Um, and that, and that's whose reputation is really only associated with booze and not with really much of any other kind of cuisine. And I follow your Instagram and I love your paintings. And I was curious, how do you balance research, writing, making art? I mean, you do a lot of things. So how do you, how's your everyday, what's like a week look like in terms of planning? Yeah, well, you know, uh, those, that's pretty much all I do. So one thing, fun. whenever I, um, whenever I'm talking like to other writers who are trying to figure out how to manage their days, the, the thing I always say is, you know, um, first of all, it's my full-time job. I don't have another job and um, I don't have family responsibilities, you know, I'm, I, I don't have kids. I have a husband who's self-sufficient, so I can kind of spend all day every day. And so you'd be amazed at what you can get done when that's the case. But for many of us, it's not. So I always encourage people, you know, be kind to yourself. And remember, we all have responsibilities and obligations. But um, for me, especially this year when I haven't been traveling, um, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not great in the mornings for writing. I'm not much of a morning person. So um, I might paint in the morning and um, 
I get some exercise. I do other things that I need to get done during my day. And it's usually after lunch that I sit down to write my pages, whatever I have to get done that day. You know, I kind of give myself a quota. So it might be a thousand words a day or whatever, whatever it is, depending on what phase of editing or revision or writing that I might be in um, with the goal of hopefully finishing up by dinner time. And um, yeah, so that's pretty much how the days go right now. Sounds lovely. Yeah, it's nice. As I was saying, I discovered your your drunken botanist through a, a different kind of book. It was uh, Wicked Plants, but mm-hmm. specifically, I discovered it by going to a museum exhibit. Oh, you... great! So I was kind of curious. What was the involvement uh, regarding that? Uh, did you have any direct involvement with it? Did the the exhibit comes first? The book come first? How how did that kind of work out for you? Yeah, I'm so glad you got to go see it. I've um, so what happened? So Wicked Plants is a book about kind of the dark side of the plant world. So it's plants that are deadly, dangerous, illegal, immoral, offensive, horrifying in some way, and. Um, Uh, After the book came out, there were a lot of botanical gardens that did exhibits based on the book because, you know, they have poisonous plants in their collections. They just don't talk about them or they didn't know how to talk about them. But I I bullied a couple of botanical gardens into doing this. And once once one or two of them did it and they saw what a great response they got, everybody kind of got in on it. And then I got a call from the uh, North Carolina Arboretum wanting to build this traveling exhibit that would go all over the country to like science museums. So it was not dependent upon having living plants in your collection. And it's kind of, I mean, you've seen the exhibit. It's kind of like this haunted house sort of that you walk through and it's very interactive. You're encouraged to open drawers and look through books and kind of figure it out for yourself, which is very fun. And, you know, someone has been poisoned with a poisonous plant or someone's gonna kill somebody with a poisonous plant. It's very creepy and cool. So they reached out to me and um, I, of course I said, yes, they needed my permission for a few things. And, um, and then they just kind of went off and did it. And I sort of didn't hear from them for a year or two. I mean, this was at the bottom of the last recession. They had to raise a lot of money. It was tough going, but they did it. And when I showed up to see it for the first time, I had no idea what to expect. They had not given me a clue. And I was just astonished. I mean, they've made all this stuff by hand. All these different North Carolina artists and craftspeople have been brought in uh, to make all this stuff, bookbinders, just incredible people. So yeah, it's a very creepy, cool exhibit. It travels all over the country now. And um, generally speaking, wherever it goes, I also get to go and give a talk. So I've seen it in almost every one of its locations over the years, which is really fun. The family went with it and the, the kids absolutely loved it. We got to see it out at the uh, Florida Museum of Natural History and uh, with the University of Florida. And it was just one mm-hmm. of the, the, something that they still remember. And it's great that, you know, I'm like, hey, I'm getting to share this kind of stuff. I'll tell you just how big of an impact it, it kind of had on not just myself, but the entire family. So it's, yeah. and it's cool Is to it- see how it plays out. It's a good exhibit in that it, it kind of works on a lot of levels. So um, little tiny kids can sometimes be terrified by it, but so older young children are super into it. Teenagers are really into it because it's so creepy, but then there's also some kind of like humor and innuendo that probably only the grownups are going to get. So I like that. I like that it appeals to all ages in that way. It's fun. So what are you currently reading or watching? Uh, Uh, You know, so like a lot of people, I think um, during the shutdown, I've just had a hard time concentrating. 
And I've actually had a hard time getting through books. And I've put a lot of books down that I couldn't get through. And believe it or not, what I'm doing right now is that I'm going back and I'm rereading all of Agatha Christie's Miss Marple novels. Yes. And I mean, they're wonderful, but it's also just kind of like I need something where I just know what I'm getting every night (laughs) before I fall asleep. So... So that's what I'm doing. Um, yeah, it's been a it's been a tough year to um, just find something that works. It's I think I think we all right now uh, because of the shutdown, we all have such weirdly specific needs in the moment, and figuring out what that is has been tough. Um, I read almost entirely off my library's Libby app, so I'm so grateful to have a steady supply of eBooks coming my way thanks to my local library and my. Husband relies on it for audiobooks as well. So it's that's been such a huge help. Thank goodness for libraries during this whole time. Our ebook um checkouts have gone up tremendously because of COVID. Absolutely, yeah. And that kind of touches on what I was uh, gonna be asking as well. Obviously, if you're using the Libby app, you have a library card. Um, what is the uh, the first library memory you kind of have? Oh, so uh, I grew up in Arlington, Texas, and um, there was a local branch library at a shopping center that I could just about walk to. But then the big downtown, I say big now, I mean, I'm sure it would seem tiny to me if I walked in there. The Arlington, Texas, the the metropolitan Arlington, Texas uh, main library was kind of our big downtown library, and that's the one I always wanted to go to. So um, they had issued me a children's library card, like you get, and I think it was blue. Um, But I've, it got to where I was checking out like 20 books at a time, and it just seemed kind of ridiculous. You know, I wasn't uh, getting books that were at my reading level in the children's section. So some wonderful librarian said, you know what, bring, bring your parents over here, we need to get you an adult library card. So from a very young age, I had a grown-up library card and was finally going upstairs <laughs> where the grown-up books were to check things out. So yeah, the library was hugely important to me as a kid because I was such a voracious reader and there was no way my parents could have kept up with my uh, reading habits as a kid. We've kind of touched on the, the the various different styles of books we have here. Me coming in from the nonfiction side, uh, Sarah coming from the more fiction-based side, what are the differences between writing that nonfiction and fiction, and how is it that you made nonfiction entertaining? Well, you know, the, the thing that I try to think about uh, for both fiction and nonfiction is storytelling. So, you know, like I wrote a book about earthworms, but it's not really a book about earthworms. It's a book about earthworm scientists, right? I mean, how, how much can you really say about earthworms without ever once mentioning a person? You sort of can't. And um, the thing about storytelling is that if you can take people, even earthworm scientists, you can take them and make them characters in your story, then people will, will follow you. Um, I wrote a book about the global flower industry and same thing. Like you, you, you can't really just write about flowers as flowers without ever mentioning a person for very long. So really I'm going around and I'm interviewing people who work in this, this global business. And that uh, is what makes all the difference. And, you know, I talked about going to France to do research for my novel. And of course I also spend a lot of time in New Jersey where the novels are set, but um, also with my nonfiction, whenever I can, I, I go meet people in person. So the earthworm scientists, I mostly uh, met them. I, 
flew out. They were mostly in the Midwest, and I did a big driving tour and spent time with people. And for the flower book for Flower Confidential, I flew down to Latin America. I went to um, Amsterdam and even in the U.S., wherever I was, if I could go talk to a flower farmer. You know, people will tell you so much more if you're in person. And there's no substitute for what a lifetime of expertise can offer as compared to what you might find, say, published in a journal article. So that's that's kind of my big thing for both. And um, thinking about, especially with nonfiction, but well, for nonfiction, thinking about how I can use elements of fiction like dialogue, character development, setting, making sure I'm telling specific stories that have a beginning, a middle, and an end, you know, being mindful of what a scene is, like a scene is a thing that starts at a particular place at a particular time, and it lasts for a specific length of time, and then it ends, and that's a scene, and I think nonfiction writers sometimes forget, like, oh, we could have scenes, and you, scenes are building blocks and you build enough of them and you have a story and we, you can do that with both. So uh, that's really the thing I always thought about. It's just that with fiction, it's so much easier because I can make things up. So I don't have to figure out how to take my kind of incomplete and imperfect research and tell the perfect story with it. I'm free to just change it, which is wonderfully liberating. <laughs> kind of reminds me a little bit, uh, if you remember the movie Adaptation, uh, where they're trying to just figure out how to take Susan Orlean's orchid thief and turn it into it. And he's just trying to just tie it all in and trying to figure out focusing on that person as opposed to just the, the, the more historical elements of the book kind of thing. Exactly. Right. No, I know. That's every writer just loves that movie so much because it's such a it's such a writer's movie. That struggle is so real. Do you have any recommendations for a new writer? Recommendations for a new writer. Yeah, um, I'm I'm sort of looking over at my um, at my bookshelf right now. But um, uh, Rosalie Nett, um, who wrote the Vera Kelly series, mm-hmm. she's uh, she's a wonderful young writer. And um, there's two of them. And I think she's working on a third one. But Vera Kelly is a is a spy in the 1950s, 60s, and she's down in Latin America some, and she's in New York some. So, so it's a great kind of women-driven spy novel uh, in, in a way that I, I have never seen anyone do before. So I really recommend her. Uh, speaking of multiple parts, I have read that you kind of have the entire series as far as relationships built for the cop series laid out. And whether it takes seven books, 14, however many it's going to take, just based on when you, either you get tired of writing them or the, the, the demand for them stops, you'll, you'll end it. Um, so where are we in that plan at this stage? Um, we, uh, this one is book number six, correct? Right. So book number six is Dear Miss Cop. And so that's the one that'll be out in January of 2021. And, um, you know, publishing schedules got all messed up because of COVID. So it should have been out already. Um, so the next book is number seven, and that will be out in September. So I'll actually have two books in one year, but that does not mean I actually wrote two books in one year. It doesn't mean the dates had to shift around. So that's number seven. And then I'm working on number eight. And uh, yeah, you know, this is kind of how it works when you're writing a series is you never know exactly how many you'll get to write. Uh, I do two book deals with my publisher. So, you know, I'll be going back to them hat in hand asking for, two more and uh, they get to say yes or no. And then that tells me what I'm doing for the next couple of years of my life. So 
that's that's what we're in the middle of right now. As far as in the the grand scheme of the relationship of the story that you had in mind, are, do you feel like you're toward the middle of it, or are you kind of still at the very beginning? Well, the period of time in their lives that I'm interested in starts in 1914 and ends in 1930. So I'm only up to 1920 right now. Mm. Um, so yeah, I still have all of the 20s left to go. And what they were doing in the 20s really kind of changed. And I could, uh, but I know a lot about it. Fortunately, they were in the papers again a lot. Um, and, and so I could kind of take as many or as few books as I wanted to get through the 1920s. It really, again, just sort of depends on how it's going and, and what I get to do. But I've got a lot of material still to work with and a, and a decade that I could potentially cover. I have one more question. Do you know within your research if any of them were suffragists or how they felt about the women's vote? I would assume they would lean towards the vote, but I'm not sure. Yeah, um, I, I don't have any clear statements from them. I mean, I do have some kind of lengthy newspaper interviews, so I do have them talking in their own um, voice a little bit. But yeah, I can't imagine that they would have been opposed to the to the vote. And, um, you know, when we think about the suffrage movement, it's interesting to think about the fact that it really did take a long time and that states were ratifying women's suffrage over a longer period of time as well. There were some Western states, I'm trying to think if it was uh, Wyoming or Montana, where women would just not move there. <laughs> like they did not want to go. And the state was like, we need to have some women in this state. Like we're not going to get men to come out here if we can't get women to come out here. So they gave women the vote super early. And it was just like, well, how about you get to vote and, you know, you could wow. run for office, you could be county clerk or something. So um, so it was something that took place over a longer period of time. It wasn't like this one moment. It was like a mm -hmm. lot of small moments for a long period of time. And there was a ton of suffragist activity in New Jersey. And uh, many of the great women suffragists whose names we all know today, who we all remember, they came out of New Jersey. So I'm, I'm quite sure that it would have been... Um, that they would have been obviously in, in favor of it. I can't imagine that they wouldn't have been. I tend to bring it up in really small ways. This is one of those things I struggle with about wanting to try to write from their point of view in 19, the 1910s and not us looking back at them. I don't want to write through the lens of 2020. So I don't ever have scenes where they're sitting around saying something like, it's so unfair that we can't vote. <laughs> you, mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Because they probably didn't say that because they'd been marinating in that their whole lives. They knew they couldn't vote. Like, why would you sit and say that to your sister that you've lived with your whole life? So it, it comes up in these little kind of uh, one-off references that just sort of fly right by because I don't see them dwelling on it um, in that way. But um, yeah, it's definitely all in the air during this time period. With these particular books, obviously, when they started, you were telling them from a first-person kind of point of view, and over the course, you've kind of jumped back and forth between that and a third-person style, so you could expand, you know, what people are thinking. Which of those two do you enjoy more doing? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, so I, I knew starting with this series that I wanted to do that. I wanted to be able to switch POV and have these books be different types of books and different styles and not be a cookie cutter. Like, it's not like a crime fiction series in the sense of there's a murder on, you know, there's a dead body on page 10 and we find out who did it on page 300. Like, they don't follow that. So I have changed point of view depending on what best serves the need of the story. 
And the first two were from Constance's point of view. And I look back at those books now, you know, authors never read their own books. You understand that. But occasionally I have to open one up for some reason. I'm like, oh, I really liked this. Yeah, I kind of miss that. Um, Dear Miss Cop, which is the one that's about to come out, that's told through letters. And so it is first person again, but it's first person from multiple people's voices as they write letters. So it's been nice to get back to first person. But I have to say there's something very appealing about the third person as well, because um, I try to have a kind of a narrator's voice. This is something that I really think about a lot as I read uh, books written in the 1910s and think about their voice. Um, Edith Wharton is a fantastic author to read from that time period. And her third person narrating voice is very opinionated. It is a voice that has ideas about what's going on. It is biased. And I love that notion that this, this anonymous third person narrator can inject prejudices and ideas and points of view and references into the text and that it's not just it doesn't just feel like it was cranked out by a machine so that's been the that's the fun part of third person that I really like is, is a little attitude to it the when when you're writing the the books obviously a lot will be started off in it and then we kind of get to where it is, where it's published. What is that editing process like for you? How do you determine what stays or goes? Well, I write a first draft in, um, I mean, generally it's like a thousand words a day. So, you know, you do that for a hundred days and you have a hundred thousand word book. So that's a, that would be a normal length for a novel. So that takes me three or four months. And then I usually stick it in a drawer and ideally go on vacation and forget about it for a little bit. And uh, when I come back to it, I usually know right away that I need to move some things around. Sometimes I've left notes like this is never going to work. I'm going to have to cut this scene and change what happens next because, of you know, whatever. So I've usually got kind of big structural changes I need to make. And then I'm um, th- then I, I I start reading the um, manuscript with certain particular things in mind. So I'll do one revision where I'm only looking at dialogue. And I skip everything in the book that isn't dialogue. And I just focus on how does the dialogue sound? And is this how people really talk? Or is it too written? Uh, I I might do one where I'm only going to focus on setting. You know, am I sure that there's readers have enough sense of what it looks like and smells like and sounds like? And we we have a strong physical sense of where people are. So I, I tend to do these revisions that are only looking at one thing or another thing. And what that keeps me from doing is it keeps me from rereading it too much because I'm just skipping around trying to solve problems. And then I have a few more mechanical things I do um, uh, near the end. One of them is something that I get from painting. Painters have this thing called the bling layer at the very end, especially oil painters. Right at the end of a painting, they go in and add the bright little highlights and the darkest little darks that you couldn't get in earlier because you just mess them up and they'd get lost. And so that's called putting the bling on. And so what I do is I print out my manuscript and I shuffle the papers out of order and I pull out one page at random and I look for the worst piece of writing on that page. And I try to figure out how to turn it into the best piece of writing on that page. Mm. And I do it for every single page so that on every page of the manuscript, there should be one fantastic little gem and one real clunker that I hopefully threw away. 
So anyway, I have all these specific things I do. I read it aloud and I make changes on, I, I do that at least twice in the process. I make changes on every page when I read it aloud. Um, eventually it goes to my editor and she doesn't edit on the line. She just sends me a list of fix this, fix that, but she, she doesn't mark for typos or anything. We have two or three rounds of that. And then I go and I read it aloud all over again and do a few other things to just check for errors. Um, and then it goes into copy editing. So then it's out of my hands. So like that's where number seven is now. It just got transmitted to copy editing this week. So I'll get it back in about a month with a bunch of notes from the copy editor and then it'll get typeset and I'll see it again as proof pages. And I, we're just checking for errors at that point. We're, we're only looking for typos. It's too late to do anything else. So uh, that's, you know, and that takes, um, I mean, the whole process beginning to end is like, it's almost a two year, pro I'm writing a book a year, but that's almost a two year cycle that all that takes. You say that uh, writers never read what they read. And you talked about re reading that about seven times in there. Oh yeah, but, but once it's done, <laughs> once it's physically a book, yeah. I, I actually, I, I went and did an event one time. I actually think this was in Florida. I did an event. And I walk into this big sort of, um, I don't know, some kind of big community room and there's projectors and they've projected quotes up on the walls all over the room. And I walk in and I'm reading what's on the wall. I'm like, oh, that's an interesting quote. Where, where did they get some of this? And I realized it was my book. <laughs> it was my first book. I had no idea. <laughs> completely by surprise. Do you have any kind of goals that you set for yourself for writing? Uh, what do you want to accomplish with it? I know a lot of people talk about writing what they're scared of or, you know, what they're trying to build strengths into it. You know, uh, my, my goal is really to uh, entertain myself, first and foremost, <laughs> keep myself entertained all day, um, and, and also just to entertain others. So I, I really see it as pure entertainment. And um, my books have never been particularly dark. Um, I'm, I'm just not a very dark person. Like, uh, so, so writing, writing anything that's too scary or even really too suspenseful, it's just, it's just not in my nature. So I tend to want to write things that are a little more lighthearted and hopefully funny. Um, if it, if it cracks me up, then I'm hopeful that it's going to crack somebody else up, you know, like that, that's my goal. And uh, so actually if people tell me and people do tell me this, like, Oh, I loved your book. It's such a quick read. Like I consider that a compliment. Like I love those kind of books. So um, I, I want to be that for, for other people. And I'm, I'm always glad when it turns out that I was able to do that. I think I the was... mission accomplished on that. There's so much fun and I love the characters. Good, good. Yeah. I, I would argue there's some, there's some creepiness and things like wicked bugs or, or things of, of that nature, but not it's, it's lighthearted darkness in a way. Right, right. Yeah. Wicked bugs is totally creepy, but it, sh it should also make you laugh in its horribleness. Yeah, that's the goal. <laughs> what kind of made you want to talk about bugs and worms? You, you talked about writing a, a book about uh, earthworms. You've obviously written one about bugs. Um, so what made you want to do that? Well, my first book was a memoir about my first garden in Santa Cruz, California. And I wrote that book when I was in my 20s. Um, and there's a chapter in that book on earthworms, which led to me writing a whole book about earthworms, because I had a lot more questions about earthworms in it it was not so easy to get answers to them. And I realized like, oh, I think there's a book in this. This is, earthworm science is actually sort of fascinating and it's sort of weirdly uh, new and unfinished. And so who knew that there's so much that we don't know about earthworms. And then I, um, I had moved to, uh, to Eureka, California, which is far Northern California. And there was a big flower farm there. 
and I'd taken a tour of the flower farm and that got me curious about like how the flowers that we buy at the flower shop are actually very different from the flowers in our own garden. Uh, mm -hmm. And then I realized that it's actually a global industry, that most of our flowers come from Latin America, that Holland is still the center of the flower world. And I thought, oh, there's going to be some amazing travel here. So, so off I go. And so every book kind of leads to the next. And you can usually look in every book and you'll see the thing that led to the led to the next book. Like in Wicked Plants, there's a chapter called The Devil's Bartender about supposedly poisonous plants would end up in booze. So you can sort of see where Drunken Botanist came from. Mm -hmm. And in Drunken Botanist, there's a mention of a gin smuggler named Henry Kaufman. And Henry Kaufman is the name of the guy in Girl Witch with Gun who commits a crime against the cop sisters. I never did find out if it was the same guy, but that's how I found out about the cops was trying to learn more about this gin smuggler named Henry Kaufman. So the idea for every book comes from the book before it. So much fun. I guess what I really wanted to, obviously you talked about that first <laughs> book being about your garden. Uh, how did that, how did you, your writing is a full-time career for you. How did you start your writing career? What, what driv, drove you to be full-time writer? Well, I had wanted, I'd always kind of wanted to be a writer, but I wasn't sure, you know, how you actually do that and make a living at it. I mean, I, I'm still trying to figure that out in some, in some ways, but, um, but uh, so I ended up not majoring in English because I thought, well, you know, I, I need a J-O-B when I get out of college and like, what is that going to be? So I, uh, I was just working. I had my kind of first job out of college and I had a little spare time and a little spare money. And I was renting a house in Santa Cruz, which is a place where everyone gardens. So I started gardening. So that was kind of the only thing happening in my life, which is why I started to write about it. And uh, this was in the early 90s. Uh, so pre-internet era, I, I started writing a little garden column for a local alternative weekly feminist newspaper who would literally just print anything anybody sent them. Uh, so, so this would have been a blog if there had been blogs yet, but there were not yet blogs. So that's what I was doing. And so that turned into from the ground up. So it really was just kind of me writing about whatever was happening in my life at the time. I mean, if I'd been interested in cooking or knitting or something else, I probably would have written a book about that. Um, and then it wasn't until the third book came out that I quit my day job and started writing full time. And that was also the year that I started traveling a lot doing uh, speaking engagements. So that those two things are, are uh, linked for a reason like there was no way to hold down a job anymore with the amount of um, traveling I was doing so so here we are all these years later I'm still still unemployed hoping to keep it that way <laughs> um, just reading the entry because a lot of these books take place in that turn of the century kind of moment um, even reading in the uh, the introduction of wicked bugs it's like in 1909 Chicago Daily Tribune ran an article entitled if bugs were the size of men uh, you said the that led you into uh, the 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 uh, poison gin obviously poison gin led you into a news story about a car wreck um, so what is it about that early 1900s that that just appeals to you so much yeah it's funny isn't it um it, and none of that's really intentional. I mean, I think like everybody's sort of interested in the 20s, right? If I, I think the 20s is sort of everyone's favorite decade because of how we've seen it in Hollywood. It just looks so glamorous and interesting. Um, but, but in a weird way, I keep finding myself getting interested in artists and writers and 
moments in history that, that have their origins in the 1910s, but without intending to. So I was never interested in it as a decade. I seemed to just get interested in people who were doing their thing, whatever their thing was, and that turned out to be the 1910s. Um, like I'm super interested in Georgia O'Keeffe and uh, she was born in um, 1887. So the 1910s was when she was kind of forming her time as an artist and the Art Student League in New York was going right then. And so every great artist's coming out of that time period. So yeah, I don't know. It's, it's funny how that happens. Maybe, I, maybe, maybe in a past life, I had a really significant run of it in the 1910s and I'm trying to get back there and <laughs> resolve some unresolved issues. Maybe that should be the next novel. There we go. <laughs> yeah. You heard it here first, folks. My time <laughs> novel. Well, we, both Sarah and I appreciate you taking some time with us today. We both enjoy your, your works and, and starting in different places, but ending in, in together and, and just enjoying what you got coming out. Well, thank you so much. I'm glad we got to do this, and uh, I hope we get to meet in person one of these days. That would be great. Yeah. yeah. I'll, Anytime. I'll see you out there. Know. <laughs> Jen, is there anything else before we leave that you want to share and haven't? Uh, no, I don't think so. Um, okay. You can send people to my website if they want to, you know, whatever. It's amystewart.com. So. Yeah, I absolutely easy. love just looking at, I went to your website, and I love that just the the magnitude of everything that you were involved in, be it, I mean, with it being November NaNoWriMo, if somebody needs writing advice, you have uh, classes there for people to do that, for painting, you name it. They, you pretty much are an all-service stop on that website. <laughs> well, good. That's what, I, that's what I try to be. All things to all people. Thank you so much, Amy, for joining us at BCPL Unstacked. Copies of Amy Stewart's titles are in the library collection for listeners who are looking for your next read, or they can be purchased through your favorite bookstore and everywhere books are sold. If you're interested in signed copies or classes taught by Amy Stewart, visit amystewart.com for more details. And Amy has been answering questions on our YouTube channel for those who want to learn more about her writing process. Stay safe and read, my friend. It's good for you. Bye. Bye.